The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. All right, grab a Bible. First Timothy chapter four is where we're going to be in a little while. Let me pray for us first, and then I'll, uh, I'll kind of orient us around where we're going today. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful to once again on a Sunday morning just to pause and to remember you. We're grateful for this day set aside in the week, first day of the week, Lord, before we rush into work, before we rush into responsibilities, before we rush into whatever lies before us over the next six days, we get to pause and remember what all of life starts with. You your glory, your kindness to us, Lord. So I pray as we look at your word together, as we think about the creed, as we think about 1 Timothy 4, Lord, would you help us to think rightly about you, to love you more, to live in light of our love for you, Lord. I pray that you would do what you've always done, which is take your word, get it into our hearts, and then change us from the inside out by the power of your spirit. We need you to do that. We trust that you will. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Well, I have a very simple and specific goal for our time together this morning, and that's this. I want to get you excited and eager, or at least passably willing, to spend the next 12 weeks with us studying the Apostles' Creed. Now, depending on your background, you probably had one of a couple of responses to the statement we're going to spend 12 weeks studying the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in kind of a high church, Anglican, or Lutheran, or Reformed Presbyterian background, maybe you're like, awesome. Like about time we talk about the deep stuff. Like this is, yes, creeds, like you're finally speaking my language. When are you going to get the priest caller? Like, let's do this thing. I am in. The second reaction that you might have might be one of dread. Like that, a creed? Like that sounds weird or boring, or why do we care about what some people a couple thousand years ago said or wrote? Like this is weird. Maybe you grew up around the creed and it was some like lifeless, just kind of thing you said every so often that had really no meaning for your life. So you're like, oh, no, no, thank you. Or maybe for you, it's one of confusion. You're like Apostles' Creed. Like, do you mean Assassin's Creed? Like, I've seen the movie series. I know what the band is. Like, they're not good. So why are we talking about them for 12 weeks? And listen, wherever you're at entering into this series, I just want to say there's freedom to be there, to be struggling and wrestling with what is this and why are we doing this and, and what's going on here. And so I just want to spend today with one very simple goal, and that's to get you oriented around the why. So at least you know why we're doing what we're doing. And so let's just start with that. Let me give you the why from the start, and then we'll spend the rest of the time this morning breaking it down together. We, here's the why, we are studying the Apostles' Creed together this summer to form our doctrine and fuel our discipleship. It's the very simple why. We are studying the Apostles' Creed together this summer to form our doctrine and fuel our discipleship. Now, before we get to the creed, go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there should be some in the rows. You can pull it up on your app, whatever works for you. I want to walk us through real briefly the whole chapter, but we'll land in particular on the end, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. All right, so pause there. 
This letter, 1 Timothy, is written by a guy named Paul to his kind of protege, mentee in the faith, Timothy, who he's been training up to be a pastor. And he says that the Holy Spirit has told him that in later times, and that's kind of Bible language for all the times after Jesus. So that's like from Jesus' ascension to heaven to when he returns. That's what the Bible would call later days, that people will come into the church bringing false teaching. He says it's deceitful, it's the teaching of demons, and what will happen is some, because of this false teaching, will depart from the faith. They will actually walk away from Jesus because of these false teachings. Now, in verses 2 through 5, he's going to give us some specifics about that false teaching. It's important, just not for today. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, if you warn them about this, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So he says, hey, when this false teaching comes, warn the church it's going to come, and then don't entertain it at all. Don't like joke about it. Don't have like a late night conversation where you're like, well, what if? Like just reject it, push it away, have nothing to do with it. Rather, verse seven, train yourself for godliness. She says, rather than spending your spiritual energy wondering if this false teaching is true or not, just reject it, warn people about it, and then go get busy again trying to follow after Jesus. Skip down to verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So he says, hey, just keep doing what you've been commissioned and charged to do. Preach the word of God. And here's our key, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. This Paul's ending to this chapter. Hey, above all, this false teaching is going to come warn people, but most of all, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Or as the NIV translates it, watch your life and doctrine closely. Paul says to his mentee in the faith, Timothy, you've got to make sure you are thinking correctly, that you don't give in to false teaching or heresy or these viewpoints or worldviews that are not of God. Don't let people convince you something is true about God that is not True, watch your doctrine, but also watch your life. Pay close attention to how you live. Don't just make sure you've got good theology. Make sure that theology has actually made its way into a proper life with Jesus. Watch your life and doctrine closely. For by doing so, here's the promise, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That word save doesn't mean in an eternal sense, like salvation. Rather, it means you would rescue and preserve your people and yourself from the very false teaching Paul had just warned them about. And here's the reality for us. Here's, here's why 1 Timothy 4 makes so much sense for us today, is that there is a ton of false teaching in the world. Like a lot of bad and destructive ideas, both inside and outside the church, about what God is like, about what the Bible says or doesn't say, what Christians should or shouldn't believe, and it seeps in everywhere, right? TikTok theologians, conversations with friends, the trials and circumstances of our lives where we go through something hard and suddenly it's not just an issue of are we going to make it through, but it's an issue of now I'm questioning my very doctrine of the sovereignty of God, right? It seeps in to our Lives And so Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Examine it. Keep your eyes 
on it. Parents in the room, this is free. It's like when you go to a park and there's 50 kids and you're like, all right, where's my two-year-old? Like, where is... That's what Paul says to do with your life and doctrine. Watch it closely. It's a part of why we want to study the creed, not part, the reason why we want to study the creed this summer is because we want to do this very thing. We want to watch our life and our doctrine closely, or to give us the larger theological terms for it, and these will be hugely important for us over the next few months. We want to be a faithful church of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Let me break these terms down for us. Again, they're hugely important. We're going to refer to them all summer long. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So ortho means right or correct or true. Dox means viewpoint or doctrine, belief. And then practice means action, right? Praxis, action or practice. So orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, to put it simply, is right doctrine, right belief about God. When you think about God, do you think about what is correct and true? And orthopraxy is right living. Therefore, do you live in line with the scriptures? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. We're spending our summer asking the Lord to holistically form our doctrine and fuel our discipleship, all right? That's 1 Timothy 4. Now let's talk about the creed and how the creed will help us do this. But before we even do that, let me just read it for us. We're going to actually, at the start of each sermon throughout the next few weeks, we're going to read it. So that's actually why we're not doing scripture reading, is we're going to read the creed all together to start our sermons. We're going to read it at the end today. But first, let me just read it for us so that you know what we're talking about when I say the Apostles' Creed. It'll be on the screen behind me. This is the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in a God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic that is universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Now, a creed, let's just break this down. A creed, very simply, is a statement of the basic beliefs of a religious faith. So creed is the English for the Latin credo, which just means I believe. It's the first two words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe, I believe, etc., etc., etc. Creeds are statements of belief. And that's what the Apostles' Creed is. It's a summation of the core beliefs of, a Christian, of our Christian faith. And it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because it was written by the apostles, these first leaders within the early church, but because it is a summation of what the apostles taught. Those teachings from God through the apostles is what we have now written down for us in our New Testament. And so really the goal of the Apostles' Creed is to summarize the doctrine and teachings of the New Testament. And this is hugely important for us, and I want you to remember this as we go through the series. We are not going to be preaching the creed. We are going to be preaching the Bible, and we're going to let the, let the creed help us preach the Bible because creeds do not hold any authority in and of themselves. Rather, they point outside of themselves to the ultimate authority of the word of God. Maybe this is a helpful illustration. Think about the sun and the moon, right? The moon is awesome, 
But you know this, if you remember like third grade science, the moon doesn't actually give off any light of itself. It does what? It reflects the light of the sun. And so if you look up on the night where there's a full moon and you're like, that's awesome. It's just reflecting really well the light that is coming off of the sun. And the same is true of the creed. The creed is reflecting the light of the word of God. The creed has no authority in and of itself, and we would never preach it like it does. But rather, it points us back to the authority of the word of God. So Christian creeds in general seek to summarize succinctly, clearly, and helpfully the truths of God from his word. And the Apostles' Creed in particular is the best well-known and probably, I would argue, the best summation of the word of God. In these eight sentences, we have an entire summary of what Christians have agreed upon as the essential doctrines of our faith. So here's the history of this. From 8100, so 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus until now, Christians across continents and centuries and cultures and languages and, shocker, denominations have agreed these are the core doctrines you must hold to as a follower of Jesus. From AD 100, 1900 years plus, Christians across time and space have said, these are the core realities of our faith. This is the words of theologian Albert Muller. He says it really helpfully. He says, all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed. So there are some doctrines that are not in here that we believe. The doctrine of baptism is not in the Apostles' Creed. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture is not in the Apostles' Creed. So all followers of Jesus believe more than the Creed, but he says this, none can believe less. You cannot be a Christian within the bounds of historical Christian orthodoxy and not believe what the Creed teaches. And this is not just me saying this. This is church history. So if I can bore you a little more, let me explain. It was no easy feat to join the church in the first century. People complain sometimes because they're like, you guys have a really robust membership process with like a class and then a sit down with a pastor. We're like a walk in the park joke to the early church. So if you were to become a Christian and want to join the church in the first three centuries, you would enter into a process where they would catechize you or teach you the truths of the faith for anywhere from one to three years. Can you imagine showing up to a church being like, I'd love to join. That's awesome. See, in three years, let's walk through this process together. What they were doing in that is they were trying to teach both the doctrines and ways of Jesus to those who were professing faith in Christ. And the tool the early church would use to teach these doctrines and ways of Jesus was the Apostles' Creed. They would work systematically through the creed, teaching these new Christians the core tenets of the faith. And it would culminate on Easter Sunday where they would enter into the waters of baptism. And before you were immersed under the water, pledging your life and devotion to Christ and therefore joining the church, you were asked three questions directly from the creed. And they were that, this, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? You would say yes, and they would dunk you under the water. And then they would ask, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, born of the Holy Spirit, and Mary the Virgin, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended in the heavens, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? And you would say yes, and they would baptize you and dunk you under the water. Then lastly, they would ask, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And you would say yes, and the third time they would dunk you under the water. They had to know new converts, new follower of Jesus, surrendering all of your life to him at the very threat of real imminent danger. Do you believe? Believe. And not just believe, but do you believe in the God of the creed? 
Because not just belief in a generic sense, right? I think today a lot of our conversations around faith can get lost because we talk about faith as if faith is the thing, right? So you're like, you just got to have faith. You just got to have sincere faith as if, and like what? Like you just got to have faith in faith, I guess, or belief in belief? No, we, we believe in God. We don't just have faith. We have faith in God, God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, God as he is summarized in the creed, but also not believe in a strictly knowledge sense. Believe is not simply to say, yes, I affirm some general truths, right? What do the scriptures say? Even the demons believe there is one God and what? Shudder. So not just belief generically, not just belief in our minds, but belief with our whole lives, a whole life surrender and reorientation around God. So the first Christians wanted to know, do you surrender your entire life in trust to the God of the creed and his work in the world and in your life? Do you affirm and align with the orthodoxy in this creed? This is Ben Myers. He says it this way. He says, the creed comes from baptism. It is a pledge of allegiance to the God of the gospel, a God who is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who is present to us in the real world of human flesh, creating, redeeming, and sanctifying us for good works. So what does Paul say to watch and guard, right? Your life and your doctrine. And how has the creed been used for 1,900 plus years within the church to guard what? Life and doctrine. And so our prayer is that the creed would do the same for us over the next 12 weeks. That we would study it together to form our doctrine and fuel our discipleship. So let's spend the rest of our time considering how. How will this creed, these eight statements, these eight sentences, how will they actually shape and form and fuel what we believe and our surrender to Jesus? Let's consider the first part, our doctrine or orthodoxy. How will the creed help us in orthodoxy? Studying the creed, we believe, will force us to reconcile what we believe with what Christians have believed for thousands of years. And this is good for us because we need to shape our thinking around what is true about God. It was the theologian A.W. Tozer who famously said it this way. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you sing and contemplate, when we get up here for the call to worship and we say, God is inviting us back to worship. What comes into your mind when you hear God is the single most important thing about you. And so we want to think clearly about God. We want to think rightly about who he is, how he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We want to know not a God of our own imagination and fantasy. We want to know God as he truly is. And here's why this matters, because there are some today in American Christianity who want to throw out the importance of doctrine. You'll hear it like this. Let's just agree on the essentials, right? Like, let's agree, like, Jesus died, rose again, believe in him, and then we'll just leave the rest of it to, like, pastors and seminary students and nerds, right? Like, that's just, that's not important, let's just kind of move on. And we've lost our way, and the stats on what we think about God as American Christians are not good. So Ligonier Ministries, which is a ministry out of Orlando, Florida, they do a, a biannual survey. It's known as the State of Theology. And it just tries to see, okay, what do American Christians believe about God? And I just want to give you a few of the results from the 2022 survey. These are answers from self-identified Christians. So self-identified, I would claim to be a follower of Jesus. Here's some of the stats. Of those Christians, 56% said God accepts the worship of all religions. 73% said that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. 43% of, again, 
proclaiming Christians, said Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 60% said the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 57% said everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Church, in just these five questions alone, and there were more, there were plenty that we could have done. These were just the five that made me the most sad. The majority of self-identified followers of Jesus answered in ways that go against core orthodox doctrines of the faith that the church has held for thousands of years. The majority of self-identified, I'm a follower of Jesus, answered differently than the core orthodoxy of our faith that Christians have held and taught and believed for 2,000 years. And in case you're not getting it, that is not good. It's not good. The majority of Christians surveyed are getting not like fringe positions of our faith we can agree to disagree on, but the core central realities. And I would argue a big reason why this is is not because of our theological deficiency, but because of our biblical illiteracy. We don't read or study or know the scriptures. And so 73% of Christians can wrongly say that Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God, even when John 1.1 tells us in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. 57% of Christians can wrongly say, most people are good by nature, even when Ephesians 2.3 tells us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What it seems is that by and large, we, we, myself included, can be terribly confused about who God is, what he's up to, what he's like, and what he's about. We've lost our way. I think there's a few reasons why that is. I can be that curmudgeon for just a minute. I think there's a few reasons why American self-identified followers of Jesus would score so poorly on a quiz about the essential realities and doctrines of our faith. First, I think it's because the American church is built on pragmatism. We are built on what works and what do I need now? Our first question when we approach the Bible and theology is not, is it true, but rather, is it helpful? And not, is it helpful generically? Is it helpful for me right now? And so if the sermon isn't speaking directly to what I need that very Sunday morning, then it was not a great sermon for me. Fix it now. Help me with this issue now. And we've missed the long game of formation that the scriptures say happen as we study and ponder and look at God over the course of the decades of our lives. Second reason is that we've bought into a really weird, over-romanticized, over-emotionalized version of Christianity that is no historical orthodoxy at all. Good church, the metric of it was, was church good or not has become, how did it make me feel? Did I get goosebumps in worship? Did the sermon make me cry? Was the prayer just the right thing to kind of hit what I needed? We've given up desire for the things of God. Third, I've got five. Third, we are obsessed with being entertained. We are obsessed. And I, I see this in myself because every Sunday when I get home from church, I ask Harper the same question. Did you have fun at City Kids? As if fun is the most important part of church. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope that your kids are having fun in City Kids. We value that. And I don't even think church is, fun is wrong for churches for adults either. But that's become the metric. Like, did I have fun? Did I enjoy this? Was this like a good use of my time? Did I, this made me smile. Did I have Fun. And church, listen to me, I'm not against fun, but church, the gathering of believers on Sundays is not primarily for fun, it's primarily for formation, for shaping you into the image of Jesus. 
There's fun to be had. There's joy on the other side of that, but it's primarily formation. Fourth reason why I think we've lost our way is that we believe the lie that we can't understand the Bible. In the 16 and 1700s, one of the prevailing myths within the church was that church members couldn't understand the scriptures. They needed a bishop or a priest or a pastor to explain it to them. I've been reading through right now uh, this book called The Way of Perfection. It's by a nun in the 1500s called St. Teresa of Avila. It's just as exciting as you would think. And uh, she has all of this incredible stuff to say about prayer. And then randomly she'll be like, but we don't, can't really explain the Bible because we're not a bishop. And it's like, you're good like 80% of the time. And then you're like, yeah, but we don't really know. Let's go ask the bishop instead. And we've just carried over that lie to thinking, I, I can't understand this. This is too much. This is too deep. It's too involved. There's too many weird words and it's translations from Greek and Hebrew. Like, I need somebody else. I can't read it and study it and know God for myself. But let me just encourage you. Some of us who think we can't understand the scriptures can understand thousands and thousands of pages of engineering. Thousands and thousands of pages of law and accounting softwares, right? We can understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit within us helps us know it and then illuminates it in our hearts and our minds so that we can actually know God. And that doesn't mean some of this stuff isn't confusing. It doesn't mean there's the role of community in helping us make sure we're getting it right. But you can read it and know God. You can read it and know him. Fifth, and this is probably the one I feel strongest about, is that I think we're all a bunch of chronological snobs. Here's what I mean. Somewhere over the past couple of decades, and we've bought this hook, line, and sinker, somewhere along the line, old became bad and new became good. Like if something is historical or ancient, then it's outdated or oppressive or at best just like lame. And we're smarter now, and everyone before 1950 just didn't know enough, and we're the enlightened ones, and we're the informed ones, and we're educated and progressive because we know what the internet is. And one of the incredible weaknesses of the American church is that because of our chronological snobbery, we've become untethered to church history. And it creates this chaos within us that we think we have to invent theological positions as if no one has written on the topics or doctrine of gender and sexuality ever before in the Christian church, ever. We think we're the only ones who have faced a culture hostile to Christianity because we don't stop to learn about the first 300 years of church history where you are more likely as a Christian to die by a sword than you were to die of old death. Hear me on this. The church has been just fine for 2,000 years. It's been doing pretty well. And I know that because we're here, separated by hundreds of thousands of miles and hundreds of years still worshiping the Jesus who died and rose again 2,000 plus years ago. The church will be fine. God is doing what he said he would do. He's building it up as his people. He's protecting it from harm within and outside. And Christians have, even through other disagreements, defended the core doctrines of our faith because our faith is not new, it's old. And it's worth us knowing that and picking up a book about church history and reading it. I'll give you one. Water from a Deep Well, Gerald Sitzer. Water from a Deep Well, Gerald Sitzer. Pay the 20 bucks off Amazon and read it and let it ground you in a faith much bigger than 2023, much bigger than Charlotte, North Carolina, much, much bigger than Citizens Church, and much, much bigger than your life. Gerald Sitzer, water from a deep well. I mean, that's part of the gift of the creed. This is Albert Moeller again. I think this is so helpful. He says, the Apostles' Creed collapses time and space, uniting all true believers in the one holy and apostolic faith. This creed is a summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemptive love, and a concise statement of basic Christianity. There is such power in knowing that when we confess the Apostles' Creed alone or in corporate worship, we are declaring the truth of the Christian faith, get this, with the very words that gave early 
early Christians' hope sent martyrs confidently to their deaths and have instructed Christ's church throughout the centuries. And so I'm just, I'm hoping and praying, and our teaching team is hoping and praying and asking the Lord that over the next few months, as we look at the basic, historical, orthodox doctrines of our faith, that even if the sermons are a little bit boring, and even if they're not immediately applicable, like Ecclesiastes or Colossians 3 or Revelation this fall, that we would be open to the ways these truths of God's word, illuminated by the creed, might ground us in what is true about God, true about the world, true about ourselves, and true about life to come. And unashamedly, I just want us to store, score better than the test. That we would be able to, as a church, take this state of, the, we're not going to, but to take it and say, man, at least we know the core tenets of the faith. At least we know this God that Christians for thousands of years have celebrated and revolved their entire world around. That's the first. The second is our discipleship, our orthopraxy. Let's think about then how right doctrine would get into our lives. And I think it's like this. When, when the early church confessed their faith through reciting the creed, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion against the world and their greatest act of allegiance to God. So what happened when the church would gather and they stood, not in an air-conditioned room protected by the rule of law, but when they stood across the centuries, not knowing who would come in, not knowing who was watching them to catch them, what they were doing is rejecting the popular narratives of their day, whatever that day was. And so in Rome, for the first 250 years of the church, they were rejecting that Caesar was Lord. They were rejecting the narrative of the first century and said, no, 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 I reject that. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm rejecting the narrative of my day, and I'm pledging myself to God. And though, church, the things we are rejecting has changed, the posture of reciting and believing and stating the creed should not. We're rejecting the modern narrative, and we're believing the historic Christian reality, the narrative that God has come into the world to save sinners, that Jesus has died for sins, that he has risen again, that through belief and trust in him, he leads the way to salvation and shows us how life is meant to be lived with God. So when we read the creed, which we will in just a moment, and each week that follows over the next few months, this is what we are proclaiming. We are rejecting the narrative of our world. We're rejecting materialism. We're rejecting individualism. We're rejecting secularism. We're rejecting isolation. We're rejecting everything else that the world would tell us to revolve our lives around. And we're doing this as a pledge of allegiance to our God and then seeking to live in line with that allegiance. So when we say, as we'll study next week, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we are simultaneously rejecting that we are our own gods, that we command our own lives, and we are surrendering ourselves in trust to the God who runs all things, including our lives. And then we learn more and more to live under his kingship. And when we say in just a minute, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, we're simultaneously rejecting that there are multiple ways or paths to God, but that it's faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone that we may be forgiven and brought into life forever with God. When we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we're simultaneously rejecting that this world is a solely material world devoid of spiritual reality. And we are surrendering ourselves to God who lives within us, shaping us and convicting us and empowering us for the work of ministry. When we say, I believe in the communion of saints, we're rejecting that we can be islands to ourselves, totally autonomous individuals living for us and us alone. And we are surrendering ourselves to the reality that life is meant to be lived with God and with others. 
this series is a chance for us, church, to let the word of God, illuminated by the creed, form our doctrine and fuel our discipleship. And so the very simple invitation is, will you let it? Like, will you follow along with us? Will you read the book we have available to you outside? Will you pay attention and take notes and say, okay, I know this may not be immediately applicable as we study the virgin birth, but God, help me, help this shape me. Help this mold me more and more into the image of Christ. And so here's what I want to do. In just a second, we're going to stand. We're going to say the creed together. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to say it like it's true as a rejection of the narratives of the world and a pledge of devotion and surrender to God. If you're not a Christian, you can just stand and watch us. It'll be super awkward and fun for you. That's totally okay. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you not to just say these as as some ancient words that, I don't know, sound kind of cool and, and nice, but as a pledge of allegiance to the God of the world. Saying, I'm rejecting these narratives. I'm saying yes to my life being about him over the course of time. So if you would stand with me, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Let's just read the Apostles' Creed together before we pray to close. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful that you are a historic, ancient God. Lord, that before time began, you were. And out of your overflow, you created. And you formed the church by the power of your spirit. And you have preserved her. You've kept her through persecutions, through emperors that wanted to be God and thought they could take you and your people out from false teaching, from crossing languages and cultures and continents, through war, through famine, through suffering, you have kept your church. We're here today reaping your faithfulness your kindness to us, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us fight against a posture that is all about the here and now, but is able to say, I'm a part of something much bigger than me. The story God has been writing from before time began, the church he's been creating for the past 2,000 years, the people he has been drawing to himself, Lord, I pray that over the next 12 weeks that it would be a rooting experience for us, that we would settle down deep into our hearts the reality that you and what you are doing are so much bigger than us. That we would rest. That we would learn. Lord, we don't want to make up our view of you. We don't want to make up our ideas about your word. We don't want to be guided by what's popular or thought today. We want to be rooted in you. given us your word. You've revealed yourself. You've not made it a mystery, Lord. And so I pray that we would 
have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and we would root ourselves in these historic doctrines and that they would lead to deeper discipleship in you. Lord, let us be a church that cares deeply about your doctrine, deeply about your truth, deeply about the world, deeply about your ways. We love you. We need you. For all these things in Christ's name. Amen.